This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, nerds. Welcome to another episode of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Adam, all by myself today on this lovely Monday morning. Assuming it's going to be lovely, I'm recording this ahead of time. Uh, what a wonderful conversation I have in store for you. I chatted with debut author Ash Davidson, whose new book, Damnation Spring, uh, just came out last week. This book is just an extremely immersive and epic story about um, the connection between humans and nature. Um, it is set in the Pacific Northwest, and it's all about a logging community and this family who kind of has these parallel stories of the uh, the husband wanting to purchase this specific plot of land for all these redwood trees that are there and how important they could be to the future of his family. And then his wife um, kind of uncovering these issues with chemicals that are being used and how that's affecting um, people who were born in that area and creating, causing lots of miscarriages and, and all sorts of stuff. It's it's just a beautifully written book and so well-researched. I, I was blown away, not only by the book, but also our conversation that you're about to listen to in a, in a little bit, in a moment here, um, fell over my own words. Uh, Ash and I had a great chat about not only the kind of history of logging and, and really understanding the scope of redwood trees and how important um, they are to not only society, but also, of course, to nature in general and that relationship between human beings and trees, um, but also just like a lot of her background, how she was going to grad school for, for writing and this feeling of maybe not being good enough of a writer, even though she was at one of the most prestigious uh, writing programs you can find and just so much going on. I, I won't spoil it, but there is a part of our conversation where she talks about the amount of words that she wrote for this book that aren't in the book, and it is staggering. So I'm not going to keep you any, any longer here. In just a moment, I'll let you get to the conversation. Um, of course, if you want to get a hold of us, you can always find us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. Uh, you can shoot us an email at ProfessionalBookNerds at Overdrive.com. Uh, had some people email us over the past couple of weeks asking about specific books we've talked about in the past. Happy to do that. Happy to give you some more book recommendations. Uh, we will be back this Thursday with a book recommendation episode. We took last Thursday off because it was Digipalooza week. If you're a librarian and you uh, listened in live to our interview with Andy Weir, I hope you enjoyed that. He was phenomenal. Uh, if you're not a librarian, we do apologize. That was a, a special thing just for our library partners. Um, but if you would like to see some cool stuff, you can also go to shop.overdrive.com. There you can see all this really awesome Libby swag, and you can get a professional book nerds t-shirt if you'd like. Um, also, and I asked this last week too, if you have been enjoying the episodes of the podcast over the years or over the months, or whether you've just joined us, um, if you wouldn't mind leaving us a kind of five-star rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts, it just helps people find us a little bit more easily. So, okay. That's all the housekeeping. Find us on the social medias. 
email us, get in touch. We love hearing from you nerds. Not going to keep you any longer. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Ash Davidson, debut author of Damnation Spring on the Professional Book Nerds podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, tell you what, we can um, kind of jump into Damnation Spring. Do you want to get uh, kind of kick us off by giving our listeners maybe an, an introduction to the book so I don't give away too much of the plot? Sure. So Damnation Spring is set in the Redwood Forest on the far northern coast of California, just shy of the Oregon line, mm-hmm. near the mouth of the Klamath River. And this is a temperate rainforest. You know, it's full of fog and mist and creeks and frogs and these chest high ferns and it's the story of a very tall logger named rich gunderson who's obsessed with a very tall tree Mm -hmm. called the 24 7 tree this is a tree taller than the statue of liberty and he mortgages everything he has to buy it and about 700 acres of trees around it but he doesn't tell his wife Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Colleen, his wife, who's a homemaker, is also a midwife in their community. And she has this encounter with an old flame who sort of plants the idea in her mind that her some of the anomalies that she's witnessed midwifing and maybe even her own miscarriages might be related to herbicides that the logging company uses. And this is really upsetting for her personally because she's been desperately trying to have a second child. And as you can probably imagine, it opens up a real rift in their relationship. It threatens to ruin them financially, but it also exposes all these fault lines underlying the community, which really lives and dies on timber Mm -hmm. and not just in the community, but even within their own family. So is this, is this an area of the country that you, I mean, if, when people read it, they will it feels so familiar as a reader because of the amount of research and time you spent like crafting this, this story in this location. But is this a, like a location of the country that you are familiar with personally? Like, did you grow up there? Um, my parents lived in Klamath, California, where the book is set for about eight years. I was very young when we left. I was mm-hmm. three, but I grew up with like, we left Klamath, but the stories of Klamath came with us, with yeah. my parents. And so it it was almost like this mythological place. But I did make two research trips back. Um, one when I was in about year four of the book and one in year six, I believe. Yeah. Um, so for people who might not be able, you know, you mentioned one of the, the trees, the 24-7 trees and bigger than the taller than the Statue of Liberty, but like what is it about Redwoods like for you? Like what made you want to tell this story? And then also just like, could you maybe explain to people like the sheer scope of these trees? Because if you haven't seen a Redwood, it's almost hard to put into perspective how massive these things are. It really is. I had a lot of trouble describing them on the page. And there's actually an epigraph 
in the book um, from Travels with Charlie by Steinbeck that says they're not like any trees we know. And that's from this longer quote that says that no one has ever successfully painted or photographed a redwood tree literally because you can't get it all in one frame. That's how big they are. And so like the original redwood forest was about 2 million acres along the Western coast of the United States, depending who you ask, um, about 5% of that remains today. In the era that uh, Rich and Colleen are living in the book, that was probably somewhere between 10 and 15%. And so, the redwoods, I mean, built a lot of the infrastructure in California, like buildings in San Francisco, all over the Bay Area were, were yeah. built out of redwoods because you can cut one tree and build five houses <laughs> from the lumber in it. They're, um, but like, I, if you haven't been to the redwoods, a common roadside attraction, and there's one of these in the book, are these drive-through trees that have been hollowed out at the base, wide, widely enough through the trunk that you can drive a car through. Mm -hmm. And so tourists drive their car through and get their photo taken. So if that like that I think that's an easier visual for people perhaps to like yeah. picture a car inside of a tree and you've still got tree on both sides. Well, and, and that, like the reason I wanted you to kind of describe, like to, to describe the scope. And like you said, you, you do it in the book as well, but if someone were to pick up the book and say like, oh, well, it's a book about logging. Like, that's interesting. But like to really understand like that they're a, a huge plot line of this is one of your main characters, like basically thinking that they were born to cut down this one tree and like from the outside looking in, it's like, oh, okay, well, he was born to cut down a tree, but it's like, no, 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 he was born to cut down a tree that like you truly can't even fathom the width and height of this thing. Like, I just do think I wanted people to understand that. And, and to a further extent, like, can you maybe talk about like what goes into the life of a logger? Because it's such a dangerous and like interesting and adventurous job, but there's so much that goes into it. So like, can you maybe talk about why you wanted to tell a story with that type of a, of a job and sort of what goes into what they have to do? I've never worked as a logger and I don't come from a family of loggers, so I can only speak to it from my research. Um, but I did interview former loggers and mill workers in Klamath and I read some excellent logging memoirs, um, Deadfall by James Lamont, which is set a little farther north, um, is fabulous. And so like, to be honest, I didn't set out to write a story that was about loggers. I had this, my family had relied on a creek behind our cabin for drinking water, mm -hmm. similar to Rich and Colleen set up in the book. And they became so concerned about herbicide contamination in that creek that they started drinking bottled water. And still today, no one in my family drinks straight from the tap. And that's 35 years later. And I was always sort of curious about what was in that creek that my parents were so afraid of. Mm -hmm. And so I really set out with that question about it was really a question about clean water and about herbicide contamination. And then when I got out to that, when I got deeper into the story, I realized that most of the people who live in Klamath were, were working in, in a job somehow related to the timber industry. Mm -hmm. um, there, there's a salmon fishery that 
it's quite important on the Klamath River. But in terms of year-round work, it was really it was really a logging town. Um, and so if I was so so I was drawn to it for kind of a practical reason. And then in interviewing, I went in with my own sort of preconceptions about um about the people who cut trees for a living i think um that like i think probably a lot of people share those sorts of views if you're not from the redwoods it's hard to fathom that mm -hmm. someone could make their living by cutting them down and feel okay about that and mm -hmm. so i definitely went in with a pretty strong ideological view of who i thought was right and who i thought was wrong and in the course of some of the interviews I did in Klamath, I, I was forced to see that, of course, human beings are a lot more complicated. There's a lot more nuance and it's difficult to find someone who loves the woods as much as a logger because mm -hmm. they like that's their office. They spend all their time there and they spend they tend to spend a lot of their free time in those areas too, hunting, fishing, mm -hmm. picking berries, camping. And so it was I thought a lot about sort of the psychic toll of your livelihood being tied to destroying something that you also love and recognize the singularity of one of the loggers I interviewed the second time I interviewed him, he brought this photo album with him. And we talked for quite a while before he opened it up. And it was, he was an older gentleman by that point, but it was photos of of him and his crew cutting redwood trees decades earlier. And I, I really thought about that a lot, about what kind of foresight it took to realize like we are cutting trees that our children will not get to see or get to cut. And so that history was documented and you could page through it. And I thought that there was something poignant in that. And I thought that, and what surprised me was I had, assumed that people working in the logging industry would not be worried or care about aerial herbicide application. And when I actually asked, that wasn't always the case. You know, one logger I interviewed shared what it felt like to be sprayed over and how it affected him, you know, his respiratory system, his eyes. Um, and that just really disrupted this very tidy narrative I constructed in my head with the sort of the environmental movement on one side and loggers on the other. I think there's a lot more gray. In yeah, there. there, man, there's, okay, there's so much I want to get into just about that alone, because uh, a few things, when I read a, a book earlier this year, um, I think Finding the Mother Tree, I think it's called, but- Oh, by Suzanne Simard. Yeah, and, yeah. and in that, she talks a lot about the um the pesticides and the things that that were being used kind of the same thing to like um i'm gonna i'm gonna use the terminology wrong stuff but it's basically when they like they strip a whole field of of trees and everything and along those same lines um one of my favorite authors is wendell berry i have like just stabbed there's actually like behind me over here is just like stacks and stacks of wendell berry books and he obviously is talks a lot about you know conservationism and like the relationship between man and like using like you know using nature and that relationship and not overusing it and things and like one of the things I'm curious about is do you think obviously speaking to these individual loggers um who you know they're they're they you know they live their lives amongst these trees and they on balance they probably do have a deep respect for 
the trees and for the forests and everything. But do you think that the companies that they're working for understand that as well? Because exactly what you said, like time works so differently for human beings versus, you know, the lives of these trees, not even to get into like the lives of the soil and how long it takes to regenerate that type of thing. Like, do you think the, the logging companies care enough to make a difference, especially at like this point in, in human history? I know that's a huge question, but. It's a huge question that I don't think I'm qualified to answer. <laughs> I, I mean, I think I would say that there's a real tension bes- between the needs of the planet and the needs of the market. And I'm hesitant to cast the first stone because I live in a house made of wood. I've written a book that's written, that's going to be published on paper. Yeah. And so I think that as consumers, like we all have a, have a part to play in that. And I was really interested in the, in the dynamic of like, I'm very interested in how society views people who work in extractive industry. Mm. I think partially because I myself work full-time for a conservation organization. I'm the definition of what Rich would call a tree hugger. Mm. And I've spent some time in public meetings and hearings where people who are on the other side, who this is actually their livelihood and it was their parents' livelihood before them and they're working in an industry that has put food on the table in their family for generations. And I think that whether you're talking about logging or uranium mining or fracking, like a lot of those concerns are are similar. Um, And I think that we have an unfortunate tendency to demonize the people doing the work, when if there wasn't the demand for the product, there wouldn't be the work to do it. Um, I like I do think that I do think that in if you're working in a larger corporation, like a logging company, just like any corporation like the you're the farther you get from the ground the farther the decision making power gets from the boots on the ground i think the more likely you are to see um to see a disregard for the impacts on the natural world because mm-hmm. it doesn't affect you if you're sitting in in a fancy office in a high rise in a city yeah. the way it affects someone who is seeing, you know, the side of the hill fall away in a mudslide because all the trees have been clear cut and it will be generations before there's another forest on that hill and it will never be the same forest that was that was cut. And yeah, and I love what you're talking about with like getting like the boots in the ground, like like your your main character, Rich, like how there's probably no one, I mean, I know he's fictional, but there's probably like he's probably the perfect example of a person who cares so much about the woods and the trees and everything because not only is it his livelihood but it's where he makes his home you know there's a scene early on in the book where he literally like takes his wife and his son like through the forest and like walks through and takes them over the spring like oh yeah goes over the water and like basically like he says something along the lines of like you could drop me in here in the middle of the night and I'd be able to find my way back because it's his home like they very much do appreciate and I and I find myself trying to be optimistic and hopeful that there are more people who like you said you mentioned you know you work for you know like conservation a little company and like i i hope there's more people like that but i probably am being a little bit naive to the fact that so many people like you said are, are more concerned with um you know with what the market 
deems that they need. And and I do, I just keep going back to, I, I think we as humans don't have an ability to think on the same type of a timeline that the world would need, if that makes sense. I think that's absolutely true. Yeah. I, and like I said, that I, not only, like I said, not only the life of the trees, but like I said, Wendell Berry talks all the time about soil and how it takes like literal generations to grow, like just to, just to create the topsoil that we need to, you know, for planting, you know, crops, let alone what a tree would need. And so, you know, when you were doing your research, like, did you come across stories about similar, like the pesticides and the spray stuff other than the, like, you know, the interviews you were doing, like, what, were there other examples other than like you mentioned your family and the Creek, like, were there, were there versions of this that you saw that maybe got out to the public or ones that didn't get out? Yeah, I think probably the best book that I know of written specifically about 2,4-D and 2,4-5-T is called A Bitter Fog by Carol Von Strom. Mm -hmm. It's about a community in Oregon fending off um, poisons that are being sprayed on them from the air. And there's actually an excellent documentary on PBS that's airing right now on Independent Lens called The People versus Agent Orange Mm -hmm. um, that's partially based on that book. And so... And that book is well footnoted. So I had I had contacted um, the Californians Against Toxic Sprays, and they had recommended that book and given me some names of people in the Klamath area, um, mostly Yurok and Karak tribal members who really led the anti-spray movement in the area around Klamath and had recommended that book. And so I basically read the book and then searched out all the primary sources in the footnotes. And it was a really good, it was sort of a really good entry point into that work. And what's cool now that didn't exist at the time that I was doing the research is that all of all of Carol's research from a long battle that eventually led to something called the ALSI studies one and two, which eventually led to the the um, the halting of use of 245T for, for in forestry. Um, all of those archives, I think it's something crazy, like 200,000 pages of documents or something has been uploaded to this um, online database called the Poison Papers. And that would have been really useful to me at the time because it, I mean, I was very fortunate to have access to the University of Iowa's library, which is excellent. And I was able to hunt down what I needed, but it would have been a lot easier if I'd had access to the poison papers at that <laughs> time. I should have waited a few more years. Uh, <laughs> were you, um, so you were at the Iowa, the writer's workshop, is that correct? I uh, was. Yeah. Um, and so you were, you were working on this while, while you were there. Is that, I, I know that a lot of people who are in that, it tends to be like their thesis tends to become their like debut book. Is that, was that kind of your experience? No, I had started it before I got to Iowa. And then Iowa was a great experience. I met um, writers there who I think will be lifelong friends and readers. And I think that was the best thing about going there actually, is that I was able to read many of these writers before their first books were known to the world, which as a reader is just like a dream come true. Mm -hmm. From a writer perspective, it was very much like, oh, I have this thing I think I'm pretty good at. And then I got to Iowa and I was like, oh, there are a lot of people who are way better at this than I am. And so, and which was kind of like terrifying, actually, and very intimidating. In retrospect, I realized I learned a lot from it, but mm-hmm. at the time it was kind of deeply unsettling. Almost everything, everything I workshopped except for one story 
sort of died on the table yeah. at Iowa. So I had this, and I saw that pattern pretty quickly that as soon as I brought it into workshop, it would be killed. Mm -hmm. And so I had this note on the inside of my apartment door the whole time I lived in Iowa that said, do not talk to anyone about your novel until you finish it. Mm -hmm. And so with the exception of maybe a friend or two, I really didn't, um, I didn't show it to anyone for seven years. Wow. So what is it that you, why do you think the the other stories kind of died at the table? Was it just, do you think it was hearing other people's opinions of it? Or was it like, what do you think caused that to happen? I think just being like pathologically thin skinned is probably sure. part of it. And I also think that the the stories just weren't strong and strong mm -hmm. enough to begin with is probably part of it. And I think in retrospect, I learned something from each of those deaths. Yeah. And I do think that like, I mean, it's, it's just like work. Are you an MFA person? I, I am not. I'm not. I've, I went, I took a, um, I have a math. I don't know. I don't have a master's in, in English. I have a bachelor's in English and then I worked, I went to uh, graduate school for sports marketing, which I am not using really? very much right now in my book company, but that's okay. I still learned. Oh my gosh. That's so interesting. Yeah. I like, I, I was working full-time a refugee agent, a resettlement agency in the DC area when I got into Iowa. And I really went because I was working a job I loved and I was working 60 to 70 hours a week. And I had always known since I was a child, you know, since like I went to, I once walked into a parking meter outside the Santa Fe Public Library while reading Nancy Drew. Like <laughs> I, I like a lot, I've always loved to read and I always wanted to try to be a writer. And so I was sort of at that phase in my life where I thought like if you don't carve out the time to actually see if you can sit at a desk and do this mm -hmm. you'll never do it so I was so I primarily went went to an MFA for for the time and I applied to 11 of them and I got into two but one of them was Iowa which is like it was just, a, it was, I th which I think just underlines that it's a huge stroke of luck. Mm -hmm. And I, and like, I really felt that about being there. Like I happened to get the spot that, but there were a hundred other people who, yeah. who were just as good or better who didn't get it because judging it is subjective at the mm -hmm. end of the day. And I think that that's true in workshop too, but it was a real gift to have a bunch of really smart, talented writers point out what was wrong with your work but for me it was kind of like here's this puppy I made and yeah. you set it on a table surrounded by people armed with steak knives that's sort of what it felt like to me it's, which is not a knock on them it's like a knock on me well then honestly though like I very much get that and and I can I mean I imagine there's probably more authors than you realize that feel the same way that like there's always that imposter syndrome with any story or anything you write no matter how successful you are in life you always are, you know there's a little like that little back of our brain that says you're not good at this and like the reason I was kind of laughing is like I said like for anyone who might not know like the the Iowa like the writers workshop there that that is a very like that is kind of I feel like that's the one that's like put up on a pedestal where like if someone says like well I, was, I went to Iowa from MF, it's like it kind of gets people's attention in like the literary world. They tend to know what that is, and so it, the reason I was laughing is because like that you were there, and in your mind you were still like, "Am I 
am I good enough to be doing this type of a, a thing? Which I mean, when people read your book, they will be blown away and know that you are. But like, I feel that to my core understanding, like, am I good enough to do this? Despite the fact that like you're there at the, this place where, you know, it's all happening as Hamilton might say. Yeah, I feel like in, if I could go back and talk to my younger self, I would tell myself not to waste that time. Yeah. Like, don't waste any time worrying about what other people are doing. Just mm-hmm. do your work and keep going. But for some reason at the moment, I couldn't, I didn't have that sort of psychic distance to be yeah. able to that. Well, I mean, like they always, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. Because honestly, I feel the same way about my, um, my degree that I got and I got I worked I went to school for English and communications and the English classes I took like there were so many of them where I would read most of the work but I wouldn't read all of it and so like I don't like I do wish I could go back and be like no you should read every single part of the Canterbury Tales don't just like read like sections or like no you should really read like all of those Shakespeare plays that you just wanted to complain about when you were 21 years old like trust me it will be good for you or like um you know I I wish I could go back and say that so I know what you mean but um because then I wouldn't have had to like you know reread Hamlet and all these different things when I was like 24 just so I could say that I got it and it's but I, I know what you mean for sure it would be nice to be able to go back and say like no do this it's gonna be so helpful I promise I admire that you got through them all because I took one semester of like a survey lit class my mm-hmm. freshman year of college that we read the Canterbury Tales in and I thought, oh, this is, I love to read and this is not for me and change my major. There was um, my same thing, my, my freshman year, because I had taken a, an AP English course um, when I was a senior in high school. And so they, when I went to college, they were like, well, you, we're going to, we placed you in this, like, it was like a junior or senior level course. I admittedly should not have been in it, but, and it was, um, I don't even remember which, I think it was just like a classics like all encompassing because I think the professor just wanted to teach about everything and the first thing we read was Gilgamesh and I remember being an 18 year old reading Gilgamesh which is like everyone calls it you know the first novel or whatever they say it is it's like 10 from like 10,000 BC and I just remember sitting there reading it and being like I'm not following any of this and then we had this what was supposed to be a very like educational or intelligent conversation in the first class and I remember the professor being like and Adam what were your thoughts and I was like you should call on anyone else because I don't know what I'm doing here like oh it was so that was rough but I kind of I stuck it out that was, that was like definitely a moment it was like the first class on my first day of college and I was like sitting around with these 22 year old graduate students I was like why am I in this class you shouldn't you shouldn't have let me in here <laughs> it, was, it was rough but um what so now that you know the the book is when people are able to hear this the the book will be out in the world like are you do you see yourself continuing to write stories like this or do you want after spending so much time with the trees do you you want to write about something else entirely the book i'm working on now is set in the world of wildland firefighting because i live in a region that's very prone to wildfire Mm -hmm. and i'm I'm interested in that and it's it's an environmental book in its own way I yeah. think and so but I'm slow <laughs> well hey well I mean it's the, this one's not a short book though I mean it's not like you I people should know like it's not like you took all this time to write like a you know but I feel like it's so much shorter than what it started at <laughs> <laughs> well I mean I feel that's 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 like human nature oh were you Oh, I actually have to ask because I've had some people tell us how many words they've chopped out of like do you remember how much ended up getting 
Left well, out. I have a file of it. It's over half a million. <gasps> Wait, that that was removed, or that was yeah over the course of many, many, many drafts. <laughs> oh my gosh, <laughs> how does that make you feel? Um, I'm sorry for bringing that up. That's so many. Now I'm at peace with it, but it is. I do have kind of. I've had a couple of instances. Like I had a, a wonderful and extremely attentive copy editor, who, in the course of copy editing, asked like. Like, isn't it strange that like neither Colleen or Rich's birthdays are in there? And I was like, Colleen's birthday is December 7th. And <laughs> I know that because I've written all of those scenes, you know, yeah. like there, are, I forget how many ended up in the book between 90 and 100 days because yeah. it's set in one calendar year, but I wrote 365 days. And so it's just, I think part of writing a novel, part of the challenge for me of writing a novel was in a short story, you can sort of step back and see the whole scope of your story. In a novel, it's hard to remember what happened 300 pages ago. And so like I had many instances of like kind of funny um, incongruities, like someone's eyes changing color midway yeah. through the book or like someone being pregnant for 10 and a half months and things, things like that. But there are also things that are like whole storylines that aren't in the final version of the book. And it's difficult for me to remember what is still in there and what's not. And so when someone will make a comment, my first reaction is like, what do you mean? That's, <laughs> but it's not actually in the book. It's in yeah. my file of detritus. <laughs> it's, it's funny you bring up the, the difference between this and like a, a short story. I remember um, I watched a an interview that Neil, well, not even an interview, an in, in conversation that Neil Gaiman did with um, Marlon James, and they're talking about writing short stories because you know Neil Gaiman's written so many of both short stories and novels. And he said that the, somebody gave him a piece of advice, which was, um, if you ever write a short story, write your short story like it's the 28th and 29th chapters of a book. And just don't worry about explaining everything that's going on. Just basically assume people are going to know what you're talking about because they will figure it out on their own. And Marlon James is like, wow, that sounds like such a wonderful uh, concept. And Neil made some kind of joke that's like stuck with me. He's like, now, if only when I write a novel, I could get someone to write those first 28 chapters for me. <laughs> that's exactly what I feel like you're talking about. You're like, there is so much in there that now isn't in there anymore. It's almost like you have that, like, it's weird to call a, what, 400 page book, the short story version of your story, but it's really true. <laughs> Yeah, I don't regret it, though, because I feel like when you spend 10 years with characters, you get to know them really well. And mm -hmm. a lot of those, I mean, there are months of my life that I spent writing things that will stay in that word file on my computer forever. But I do think that they help me understand my characters mm -hmm. better, even if that piece isn't on the page. So having spent so much time with these characters, how did it feel to like when you put that in like the final final copy as they'll call it like when you put that out in the world and you're like okay this is you know I've heard authors say like you know when it's when you're writing it it's your story when it's out in the world it's the reader's story like how did it feel to know that this is going out in the world and like you're no longer tinkering with these characters was it did it feel good or was it like did you kind of want to hold on to it even longer I think if you had given me a choice I probably would whole like I would this is the book I would spend my whole life writing and yeah. I would like I could spend another 20 years because it's very easy for me to look at and think like oh if you just twisted that one thing that would have been better yeah um, and so it was hard in that sense but it like said like such a joy in so many other ways and I also think that I like 
I was so focused on writing this book that I never really imagined what would come after. Yeah. And so to be totally honest, even though this sounds foolish, it did not occur to me that other people would like get to know these people mm -hmm. and have opinions about them. And I find myself like, even though there are a number of characters in this book who do really abominable things, mm -hmm. um, it is, it's difficult in some ways to watch them be judged by other people because I've cared for them for so long. Even when they do despicable things, I feel like there's a long thread that explains that action. Like it's not an, it's not an act of psychosis or like, a, and so like, I understand the motivation for those things. And it, it's very interesting to see other people's responses and know that of course, everyone has different ways that they judge people in situations and their views on characters are perhaps uh they think of things that i didn't necessarily think of and one thing that has surprised me from early readers is how harshly readers judge colleen mm. i i will say though i think spending i imagine i think it's rare for people to to say what you just said were you know, you didn't really ever think about other people experiencing this story. And, but I think because of that, it probably helped you write such a fully rounded, you know, story and these like tr coming, like these characters that feel like they actually like jump off the page and come to life. Because I feel like so often in life, people are always trying to rush to get to the next thing, always trying to rush to get to the end of something and just like get it out in the world. And everyone needs more content and everyone needs more stuff out there. Like I imagine never you know, not worrying about that, probably, it's probably a healthier way of, of writing, I would imagine, at least for me personally, as a person who is always trying to like, if I get stuck on a part of the novel that I'm working on, I'm like, well, I need to go write a short story so that I can have done something productive. Like, I imagine it's probably pretty, pretty healthy mentally to at least to never be too concerned with what the outside world's going to think of while you're writing it. I, don't, I might be just like projecting what I wish I could be like to add you. So I apologize. I think honestly, if I thought about, if I thought about someone on the other side reading it, I would be paralyzed. That's fair too. That. Yeah, that's fair too. Um, so towards the end of our episodes, I'd like to ask nine lighthearted questions that we call the nerd nine, just because I'm a fan of alliteration. Uh, so the first one is, what is the last book you finished reading? Oh, The Roundhouse by Louise Erdrich. It was magnificent. Do you have a favorite place to read? Yeah, I have this like imitation womb chair mm -hmm. that is giant and unwieldy and is great to curl up in. And I have to put something on it when I leave the house. Otherwise, the dog will avail himself of it. <laughs> That sounds like one of those chairs where I have a very like deep um, sectional couch. And if I'm going to sit in the corner of it, I have to like put like my water or my coffee and everything like that I'm going to need for the next like two hours next to me because there's no getting up out of it. That sounds very similar. <laughs> um, do you remember the book that made you fall in love with reading when you were a kid? Oh, my mom read to us constantly. Mm -hmm. um, so one of my favorites as a very young child was Professor Wormbog and the Zipperampa Zoo. Or maybe Professor Wormbog and the Search for the Zipperampa Zoo. But when I could read on my own, I think it was 
I think they're probably similar to what a lot of people read. Like I read the Nancy Drews obsessively, which I think is why I'm so afraid of the dark as an adult and uh, the boxcar children, all those kinds of books. Yeah. Uh, What is one place you'd like to travel that you have not yet been to? Um, I think Banff, Canada. Yeah. I so mine, it tends like mine's Vancouver is what like that. I, um, I follow this Instagram account. I think it's in Vancouver. I think it's like Vancouver Island. There's, I think there's a rainforest on Vancouver Island. Yeah. And it is, ju- it just seems gorgeous. And so, yeah, I, I very much appreciate that answer. Uh, do you have a favorite holiday to celebrate? New Year's. So that one you were quick on the, quick on the jump for. You do that one right away. <laughs> uh, coffee or tea? Coffee. Most writers say that, but I, we still ask every episode. I don't know why. <laughs> um, cats or dogs? Dogs all the way. Yeah. Do you Unless have it's a, like a dog cat. I'm open Yeah, that's that. understandable. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have a, a favorite food? Ethiopian food. Mm. And then if you could have dinner with one person alive or dead, who would you pick? Oh, my uncle Dennis, who passed away when I was a child. I would love to have a conversation with him as an adult. Okay, last question for you. What do you hope readers take away from Damnation Spring? Oh gosh, so much. Um, I hope that people Google the Redwoods Mm -hmm. or go to visit them if they're able to. Um, I hope that it makes people think a little bit about their own drinking water and where it comes from and what's Mm -hmm. in it. And I think we live in a political moment that's so polarized. I would hope that in getting to know Rich and Colleen, wherever you stand on issues of environmental regulation, that you might pause and think about why there are people who view those issues differently mm-hmm. and perhaps take a moment to recognize sort of the shared humanity of people who might not vote the way you do. Because I think that one thing I learned, or one thing I was reminded of while writing this book that I hope readers might take away with them is that no matter what side you're on, those fundamental human desires, you know, to take care of the people we love and to keep them safe the best way we know how, those are shared. Yeah, that is a perfect answer. The book is amazing. I wished I could spend even more time with these characters maybe we'll get those half a million words someday but thank you so much for joining me today thank you so much for having me it's an honor readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from overdrive.com and our library friends can purchase these titles in marketplace professional book nerds is proud to be an evergreen podcast signature program to learn about other evergreen podcasts visit evergreenpodcasts.com our podcast is produced recorded and edited by adam sokol and jill grunewald and presented by overdrive for more information visit professionalbooknerds.com hi there i'm heather drago and i'm sarah saunders We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, 
parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardknowpodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no.